Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another edition of the New Books and Anthropology podcast. We're joined today by Professor Jeffrey Cohen. And uh, Jeff, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you know your recent feelings a little bit better than I do. Sure. Thanks, Jared. It's really lovely to be here. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Cohen. I'm a professor of anthropology at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, my research focuses on uh, migration. Um, a little bit on food and a little bit on development as well as methodologies. And of course, since you're on this podcast, we understand you have a new book out. Right. So I published um, a couple of years ago, I published the book Eating Soup Without a Spoon, Anthropological Theory and Method in the Real World. And in the book, what I, tr- what I do is to really explore how in doing our research, we bring theory to life and how we kind of... Uh, operationalize some of those theoretical ideas so that we can actually, you know, find them in the field. And I tell the the story through um, really looking at my field work uh, from the early 90s when I spent a year living in a small um, indigenous community in southern Mexico, a little place called Santana del Valle in Oaxaca. And the um, the title comes from probably one of the most pivotal experiences that my wife Marie and I had while we were doing this research. It was early in our, in our, um, stay and our patron, this was the person that we lived with uh, who owned uh, a lot of houses around the community. And we were living in one of them. Um, he came to our house early one morning and basically grabbed us and said, it's time to go to a wedding. And it was our introduction really to the world of, of the community and the people who live there. And um, in the process, uh, the title comes from the experience of being at that wedding um, and um, joining in with everybody uh, in breakfast, which was a, a big bowl of uh, soup that was called a higaditos, and, and not having a spoon, learning how to eat that with tortillas uh, and uh, interacting with the community around us. And, and really, it was the in a sense, a coming out party for us, because from then on, we were always the gringos. We were Mauricio's gringos. He was the guy who, again, our, our patron. And, um, you know, it gave us this identity, and, and it was actually a, a rather comical moment when uh, when we had to, you know, eat these things, um, not really knowing how to do any of it. So it was quite a, quite a, quite a little experience. Well, as anthropologists, we're pretty much required to go on adventure from time to time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess this was our adventure. It was um, not one that we had anticipated in any sense. Um, You know, there are so many things that we do to get ready for our research and it ranges from, you know, learning a language, in this case, learning Spanish and a little bit of Zapotec to, you know, getting uh, theoretical ideas and how those were going to be modeled. And and for, for me, that was really a question of how to, 
how does this community adapt to its play, its growing space in a globalizing economy? Um, and, you know, this was a moment to kind of meet everybody. I think we had been in the village maybe 10 days at this point. So it was still very new to all of us. And, and um, you know, it was just, uh, it was, it, it really helped. I mean, we met a lot of, uh, we met so many people. We, we um, you know, I, I found lots of people that then be, went on to become informants. Uh, people knew who we were, which was very nice. It wasn't sort of like we, we were an unknown sort of quantity or quality. And, and um, you know, from then on, we, we started getting invited to things, going with our, the families that we were staying with, and uh, it kind of just grew. Now, this became a field site for you, of course, and you've published on the area and, and the culture there. Um, what I'm wondering is, why write the book now as a retrospective instead of having written it sooner? That's a, that's a really good question. I actually thought a lot about this book. This book um, is, in fact, rooted in some writing I did, uh, I think, in the 1990s, and it, it actually developed out of... Um, a class in, anthropo in ethnographic field methods when a student asked me why I didn't like everybody in my field site. And, and that, <laughs> and that really grew. I mean, it really, it, 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 it kind of hit me as a very, that was a very tough question. And I realized that there is, there's very much a, uh, a, a, there's a way of characterizing anthropological research. I think a lot of anthropological research uh, and the time that we spend doing our field work, it tends to get represented on the one hand as almost like, uh, I, I don't want to make this sound worse than it is, but it's almost as if you're kind of like um, uh, bigger than life. You know, it's, it's not quite being a God in the field, but it's sort of like, you know, I am, I am this, 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 ego and you know everybody is here to help me and you become kind of the heroic figure in the story uh so that's kind of one side on the other side you get stories of anthropologists where everything kind of fails and at some level it's almost a comical kind of characterization of the experience and you get this the quality becomes one of i can't believe i lived through all of this to tell you something about it and i really felt like there were that missing in between those two was any account of how we take the ideas that we learn uh, and, and, and make them into things we can study. And so what I, what I really wanted to do was tell the story about how this, the, this very specific question, how do Santanieros, this is the, the people that live in the community, how are they, kind of adapting to this place in a globalizing economic system. And so that's what, you know, the book documents was, were those experiences. And I think at some level, uh, for me, I'm not sure I could have written it uh, before. I think I had to be in a place where I was ready and I was kind of comfortable with myself and I wasn't uh, too afraid to kind of show how difficult the whole, the experience was and really walk away from any of those caricatures of the anthropologists in the field. Speaking of caricatures, during uh, a good portion of the book, especially the intro, I was having just brief glimpses of Malinowski. 
Yes. Uh, was that intentional? Um, and and also, how did how did you reflect on Malinowski's writing and sort of work around uh, some of some of the negatives with which he tends to be associated? Right. Well, I, this was really important. I think was the these what I, I refer to them almost. I, I refer to them as ghosts, like ghosts of the field. And Malinowski wasn't the only one. There was there. He was there. Margaret Mead was there. Franz Boas was there. Uh, Elsie Clues Parsons, who's a person who did her research in the in the region, she's there. And these are people who, in a sense, you know, they didn't. They're, they're not real. These were the people who were. Uh, the ghosts in my head, the people that I was always worried, how how would they react to what I was doing? And I found myself on many occasions actually writing to them. I would write very specific letters to people like Malinowski and Margaret Mead and Elsie Clues Parsons and Franz Boas. And I would tell them what I was doing in a way that I thought maybe they would understand how anthropology was changing as we were coming into the 1990s uh, from, from their work in the early parts of the 20th century. Um, and uh, that was really useful. It's actually become part of my, part of the way I teach at this point is to, to use those, to use those letters. I asked my students to actually write to anthropologists or other scientists that uh, writers that, that they want to tell about their work. Um, and and it, it's a way I think to, to kind of confront our demons. It's also a way to think about our own voices and how we're representing what we do. On that note, in looking into this uh, in terms of what audience you had in mind, I get the impression you were writing this for undergraduates. Yeah, I think it's mostly a book for undergraduates who um, are learning ethnographic field methods. For graduate students, I would hope they would pick it up and just be, in a sense, reassured that it's okay, they can make mistakes, that it's not all going to go perfectly, that there are going to be days when they just don't want to get out of bed. Um, there are going to be days when they just, their informants are driving them crazy and the theories that they're in their heads are I'm never going to answer these questions. So I think it's for, you know, a big audience. Um, I'd like, I'd like to think that anybody could pick it up and have a, um, an interesting experience learning about how to do research. Um, but, uh, you know, it really does come out of that kind of moment in time where undergraduates are beginning to learn how to do their research. Uh, part of what I try to do is to, to share with them how to create kind of a calendar and, and how, you know, your work develops through your stay and so on. Um, but also, you know, I, I can remember just being so nervous, uh, that I wasn't getting what I needed or that I was going to miss something. And so for the student who's working on his or her, uh, dissertation research, I just want them to remember that it's okay. You're not going to get everything that, that there are going to be moments when it's going to feel very weird. And weirdness is sort of our stock and trade, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes I think, yeah, <laughs> it's certainly, certainly when people look at us, I can remember people in, you know, in my field saying like, what, what are you still doing here? You know, you, you've been here for two weeks. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> now as a, as a bit of a teaser, um, portions of the book are, are very clearly, uh, giving advice to novice field researchers. What are a couple of main points that you would tell someone specifically going into the field for the first time? 
Well, I think the the most important thing is not to take yourself too seriously uh, because you're you're asking people to open up their lives and share a lot of information with you. And, you know, there's a little bit of there's a there's a little bit there's an exchange going on and you have to be ready to kind of hold your part of the bargain up. And part of that exchange is you're going to make it interesting. And I think if you take yourself too seriously, you can put yourself into a position that, that, um, no one, people are going to have a hard time talking. Um, certainly, you know, one of the most important things to know is never to tell somebody that they're wrong because nobody's wrong. Um, I kind of start by talking about um, uh, rapport and how people can kind of fool around with the truth. Some people would say, you know, talking about lying. Um, and I don't think people generally lie. I think they're playing around with words and they're playing around with stories. And really, if we walk in overly serious about the work that we're good, we're going to do, there's usually somebody in that community who's going to start kind of feeding us lines that are going to sound really incredible, but it's going to be a story, not so much uh, the reality. But one of the more incredible things uh, about your story involves uh, grasshoppers. and And the concept of entomophagy, would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Sure. So one of the, one of the things that, um, the, well, one of the foods that's consumed in the rural villages in, in Oaxaca Central Valleys are grasshoppers. They're called chapulín. Uh, so there are grasshoppers that are toasted um, and uh, served, cooked. There's a couple of different kinds. They're little, uh, the nymphs that they very often refer to as babies, um, and then the adults. Sometimes they'll have a little bit of flavor, but generally they're just uh, toasted with a little bit of lemon and maybe a little bit of garlic and served up, rolled into uh, tortillas or served uh, as a kind of garnish on some salsas or something like like a salsa on, on other sorts of foods um, and they are um, they tend to be very high in protein uh, very pretty healthy uh, we ran some tests uh, just to look at contamination that might be present and nothing really showed up so uh, they seem pretty safe uh, they they can get they can be contaminated by uh, the the pots that they're prepared in. So they can pick up contamination from, like lead contamination from pots that have a lot of lead in them. Um, but on their own, they can be, you know, pretty tasty. You learn to love them. Um, I can remember being up in the mountains one morning uh, working with uh, with uh, Mauricio and, and uh, he pulled out a bag and he's like, hey, gringo, look what I got for you. And... Uh, <laughs> That was one of those moments when it was like, all right, I'm an anthropologist. I'm just going to eat this and I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, give him the pleasure of watching me get disgusted. <laughs> but I discovered that they were pretty tasty and, and uh, I'm happy to eat them now. And and that's worth it that I actually continue to do is looking at the role that the grasshoppers play in changing diet in the central valleys. How common is it as a part of the of the typical diet of a Oaxacan versus uh uh, well, when I when I lived in China, insect cuisine is somewhat common, but it's usually seen as as more touristy these days. It it hasn't been a staple for a long time. Right. 
I think it's a, I think it's very similar in in uh, Mesoamerica and Mexico. Um, so uh, they were available everywhere. They're on menus at lots of uh, like touristy restaurants. I you don't see very many people eating them anymore. Uh, what you see are tourists eating them. Um, I think there's a lot of things going on in terms of how the diet is changing. It's certainly um, been transformed in the last 20 years to a diet that's that's built much more around store-bought foods and pre-prepared foods. Uh, and so there is a real decline in the consumption of grasshoppers. Um, the history of their consumption is also really something that needs to be understood better. I, it's, it's work that, that I kind of chip away at, but it's very hard to, to uh, follow. There's not very much, uh, they're not, there's not a lot in terms of, there's not a lot of detail in terms of, of um, the consumption of Chapulín. What you actually see a lot of are uh, stories about Mesoamericans eating uh, water insects and the eggs of water insects. Um, and there's some research that some archaeologists have done that show um, in central Mexico, pulling literally tons of insect eggs out of the shallow lakes that made up the Valley of Mexico. Uh, and that was probably one of the most important protein sources for the region. You know, entomophagy is often written off as uh, something kitschy or touristy, as you said, but it's important to note that as an agricultural industry, it's extremely productive and reproducible. It doesn't have the same uh, uh, ecological impact right. as, as animals. Right, right. No, absolutely, absolutely. A very, yeah, it can be very sustainable, um, and it certainly doesn't. It doesn't create the kinds of challenges that large mammals create. You know, yeah. And I certainly saw a lot of large mammals when I was living in both the Midwest and Texas. And <laughs> I, I have to bring up that we're we're both Hoosiers. We are both Hoosiers, and so yes, we live in a in a world defined by, I guess, corn, soybean, and cows. <laughs> No. <laughs> so was it a market? Uh, was it a market? I mean, a drastic change when you went on your initial field work? Yes. So my uh, my wife Marie and I we drove from Bloomington, Indiana, to Mexico in a, in a Honda Civic, um, and it was pretty incredible the changes that we went through. the The most incredible thing I remember actually is coming home, and. We get back to, to Indiana. We'd spent over a year in Mexico and we get back to Indiana and um, we went to where my parents were living at the time. And they said, well, why didn't you call us and tell us that you were, and I, I had, I had so, I'd got, I've, I had become so kind of um, comfortable living without a phone, uh, you know, and this was before cell phones and everything else, but we were living in a community of, of about 2000 people with one telephone for, for everyone. Um, that we just had not even remembered that it was something to use. Uh, and so that, that really kind of threw us a little bit. So. I've certainly gone through the same thing with air conditioning. I, oh, I just too. can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever be used to that again. Yeah, yeah. I also like to joke that as you drive southwest across the United States, the flags become bigger. They probably do, yeah. Yeah. I can remember also stopping on the way down on the highway when we when we got to the tropics and we recrossed the uh the line into the tropics. So we got out of the car and we took pictures 
so that we had, you know, one foot in the tropics and one foot in the northern hemisphere. It's very, you know, cheesy but fun. It's important to be taken out of your um, your physical environs as well as cultural right. for this sort oh, of uh, activity, right? Excellent. Um, so as far as what you're working on now and in the future, what can we expect to see from you? So I continue to work on the migration, uh, questions of migration with, um, with a, a colleague of mine, um, a, a, a geographer who's named Ibrahim Serkechi. He and I, we've developed a model of insecurity and migration, and we talk about that in our book, The Cultures of Migration. Uh, and so that's something we continue to work on. Uh, we're bringing in comparative material. So he does work mostly in on uh, Turkish uh, migration. So we compare Turkish and Mexican outcomes. Um, there, there are a lot of interesting parallels between um, Kurdish minority migrants moving into Europe and Oaxacan migrants moving to the United States. Um, so we do comparative work. Uh, there's some work that I've been doing with some colleagues in China that's been really fun. And then there is this work on um, on methodology, on uh, entomophagy. And, you know, I, I feel in my career that I'm in a place where I can do those things now, can kind of um, enjoy looking at things that were always interesting to me, but I just didn't have time to look at in the past. That sounds like very exciting stuff. Are you going to be at AAA this year? I will get AAA and uh, presenting. A, I think I'm a discussant on a panel. Um, it's archaeologists talking about abandonment, and they asked me to to comment on what a, what abandonment means for migration research. Uh, and that's a very interesting question. So I'll be working on that. I'm very much looking forward to it. And as a final note, uh, can you give us some more details about the book? Where to where to buy? Who's the publisher? Sure. So you can find this book at my uh, at its home at the University of Texas Press. Uh, it's also available on Amazon. If um, if you have a hard time finding it, you can always email me. I'm easily accessible through the OSU, the Ohio State University website, um, and um, I, I'm happy to talk to. Anybody that, that picks up the book, has questions, wants to know something else, just drop me a message and I'll be more than happy to, to talk your ear off. Excellent. And how can listeners contact you? So the best way to contact me is through my email, and that's uh, my last name, Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, and it's C-O-H-E-N dot 319 at O-S-U dot E-D-U, and that's at the O-S-U, uh, that's the O-S-U uh, site. And you can also always get find me through the anthropology department at Ohio state. Excellent. Where I, as I understand it, you teach a very popular class known as the zombie class. Yes, I do teach the zombie class. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that class is um, completely different than anything else I've ever done. I just, I thought, how do we make introductory anthropology something really, really different. And so I use zombies and other monsters um, as a way to, to introduce anthropology and bring it to life, uh, or maybe afterlife, I suppose, um, for the students who are involved. And we end up looking at a lot of the ways in which anthropologists study things like death and the afterlife and 
other kinds of things that are associated with zombies, like cannibalism and I mean, all kinds of fun stuff. And the, the, the part my students, I think, love the, the most is that we, we run a, we run up um, a contest and it's called America's Got Zombies. And it's just a, it's sort of a take on America's Got Talent. And uh, so I have a, a series of, of goals that need to be uh, met that are associated with different kinds of zombies. And then the students create their a version of that for themselves. They become a zombie uh, and tell us how they, what they do, why they're the way they are, you know, Things like why don't they run? Why do they run? What do they eat? What don't they eat? Do they think? Do they not? You know, all kinds of fun things um, that really bring it right into anthropology. But it's it's fun. It's like Halloween on Fridays in my class. So I enjoy it a lot. <laughs> That's a fantastic way to introduce ethnography and and that mode of yeah. thought to uh, to newer students. Outstanding. Yeah, I, I I find it very satisfying when students tell me, "Oh, you don't have to do anything but get dressed up," and uh, I feel, "Okay, that's that's one down. I've got you." So excellent. Well, Jeffrey, it's been great. Is there any uh, anything else that you'd like to ask or or let the viewers know, our listeners? I should uh, say. I don't think so. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book and my work. And uh, and again, if um, anyone's listening has questions, please just uh, let me know. I'm happy to talk. Excellent. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Jared. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to, to talk with you. Okay. That was Professor Jeffrey Cohen uh, with his new book, Eating Soup Without a Spoon. You can pick that up online from the University of Texas Press, and he will be at AAA this year, so be sure to stop in and check him out. And this has been another uh, episode of New Books in Anthropology. If you'd like to listen to more of our material, just uh, return to any uh, podcast outlet that you have found this on and the rest of our episodes will be available. 